if you're going to go to Carnegie Hall, you get there with practice, practice, practice. The same with athletic, athletics, the same with any business, including medicine, and especially surgery. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. so privileged to bring you a very special guest today on Cold Steel, Dr. Ken Maddox. We use the word icon within medicine far too frequently, but to be truthful, there is no bigger icon within American or global surgery when it comes to the care of injured patients than Dr. Ken Maddox. From his annual Las Vegas review course, to the industry standard textbook on trauma, to his course-altering peer-reviewed publications, he has arguably had a greater impact on the care of injured patients than anyone else in history. He remains driven, controversial, and committed using any metric one can contemplate. We hope you enjoy this podcast as much as we did. Dr. Maddox, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. You really don't need any introduction. You don't really need to, to, to tell your life story as the vast majority of our listeners will know you and your reputation. But can you tell us and walk us through where you grew up and what your training pathway was to really put it in context for our, our discussion going forward? I was born to dirt farmers in White Oak, Arkansas, population 15, the year I was born. Most of my relatives were uh, uh, sharecroppers, if that. And when I was six months of age, the work ran out, and my dad, who had been chopping cotton for 50 cents a day, uh, and another couple went to California. And we were migrant farm workers for several years, very religious. And uh, I, uh, we moved from uh, California ultimately to El Paso, and I graduated high school from Clovis, New Mexico, going to Wayland Baptist College uh, with two scholarships, a music scholarship, and I sang, I sang uh, in an a cappella choir, and I also had a ministerial scholarship to be a Baptist preacher or Baptist missionary. During my first year, I fell in love with biology, changed my major to pre-med, and then decided to go to Baylor College of Medicine, which had a reputation of being a tough medical school. I liked that. And uh, I took, uh, I fell in love with surgery, and uh, um, except for two years during the Vietnam War, I was in Houston for my medical school, my... Um, residency in general surgery, residency in thoracic surgery, 
and uh, promptly became a faculty in the Depart Michael E. DeBakey Department of Surgery. And uh, about um, 1989, I was made chief of staff of the Bentob Hospital. I already was chief of surgery. And this year, I stepped down as chief of staff. I still have a number of responsibilities at the school. Uh, I uh, uh, no longer uh, scrub actively on either elective cardiovascular cases or trauma cases. I do go to all the educational uh, sessions and participate in uh, uh, many of our conferences. And um, I'm married. I have one daughter. And um, I try to stay busy. Well, there's no, no question you've succeeded in being busy. You, you know, you've really been at the center of all things trauma for, you can correct me, but at least four decades. Your, your contributions are endless. I think, as Amir said, most of us, you know, are, are aware of a lot of them. And you've certainly informed and molded and driven a lot of us that do injury care um, to our well, core. Let, so let, I, me, let me put this in perspective for yeah. both you and uh, Amir. Uh, when I started medical school, the following things did not exist. EMS, emergency medicine, vascular surgery. Uh, the American Board of Thoracic Surgery did not exist. Surgical critical care. There were emergency rooms run by the lowest ranking individual in the hospital, interns. There were no faculty in the house. We had, we had uh, penicillin, but not complex aminoglycosides. We had uh, 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 mercury-based mercury di diuretics, but we did not have loop diuretics. Uh, the, uh, the volume pressure ventilators did not exist. The fancy ventilators where you added PEEP, etc., did not exist. Intensive care units did not exist. And um, uh, ambulances were run by the local funeral parlors. That was in 1960. And it was literally in the mid-60s before we began to have dialogue. Trauma systems, trauma surgeons... And trauma as an entity did not exist. Trauma was felt to be a psychological event uh, that described stress. So that's where we all started. And today, uh, the enterprise, the integration of the various disciplines and how we work together and what is available to patients uh, is uh, I have, I've had the opportunity to see develop over time. Can you tell us about what some of those initial challenges were in, in creating a, a, a modern subspecialty such as injury care and a, and, a, and a trauma system or at least recognition of it, maybe locally as well as nationally and internationally? Well, I um, decided I was going to be a cardiovascular surgeon. Cardiac and vascular were united back then. And in 1970, uh, one, I finished general surgery and took a two-year thoracic residency and sort of thought, I'll stick around as a faculty for a little while. 
and I determined what organizations I wanted to belong to, Texas Surgical. I wanted, we were forming and making emergency medicine and EMS organizations. I wanted to be in the vascular surgery uh, societies, the thoracic societies. Uh, but then when I looked to see uh, what they required, they all wanted 75% of my papers to be in their discipline. So I said, okay, I'll start writing about what everybody else in my department writes about. Well, all the elective stuff <laughs> they had written about and were still writing about, and here I was at the bottom of the totem pole. So I, I, Dr. DeBakey wanted me to work over at the Bentob helping the singular faculty that was there. So I became the second faculty in surgery in 1973. And I wanted to belong to the organizations and to belong you had to be productive and present papers and the only papers that people hadn't presented were injury but an injury organization didn't exist so i um, made it my mission to write a paper a summary paper a review paper a chapter paper ultimately textbooks on every vascular, cardiac, thoracic uh, emergency and injury that occurred. Because except for a few people, Norm Rich and a few others, there weren't, weren't many papers. So my papers got accepted at every meeting. And uh, those were, then were published. And that became a, a place, a niche for me. And at the same time, uh, forming a network across the country for patients to go to, level one, two, and three trauma centers. Meeting, meeting a high bar became the mission of a few people whose names you know, uh, George Shelton, uh, Don Trunke, uh, Norm McSwain, and on and on. Uh, we even had uh, uh, some folks from Canada who were part of that early uh, club that everyone thought was a bunch of misfits because it wasn't the traditional area. Sir, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about that is is the fact that you were able to recognize that clearly there was a need for something like a specific trauma specialty. So I'm curious how you sort of saw that. And the second thing is that, you know, I don't think it's an accident that you were able to contribute so much to the field based on the caliber and the, the high technical expectations that were placed upon you by training under someone like DeBakey. What was that experience like training with DeBakey and how do you think that sort of informed your practice and your expertise going forward? Dr. DeBakey expected nothing of anybody that he didn't produce himself. Uh, he loved to work. He thought sleep was a bad habit. It uh, would not be unusual for him to make a phone call at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning uh, to talk over something that he was thinking about. And if you didn't like that, uh, he didn't understand it. He um, was a disciplinarian. He expected total attention to detail. He expected... Uh, pursuit of excellence, uh, and um, he um, expected you to know more about his patients and your patients 
than anybody else. He expected you to know more about internal medicine than any referring doc, more about antibiotics and infectious disease, more about cardiology than the cardiologist. He expects you to look at every x-ray, uh, every lab data, data, and integrate those. And uh, he had rotations. Most people only had them once on his service that were three months in length. You never left the hospital for those three months. Uh, and sometimes they were on the floor with his inpatients, and sometimes they were on a new thing he had created called intensive care unit. Uh, I had that rotation for three times. Uh, you only saw your family if they came on weekends when it was less busy and you had breakfast, lunch, or dinner with them. And um, uh, so uh, uh, that was the environment. During those times um, in the operating room with Methodist Hospital, Bentob Hospital, the Children's Hospital and the St. Luke's Hospital, the affiliate hospitals of Baylor, it was not unusual for there to be 75 cardiovascular cases every day. So you look, Mary looked at the schedule and said, what have I not seen? What do I need to see? Uh, what is it I want to learn today? What is it I want to learn this week? And uh, it was in that environment where everybody... Um, owned their patients. There wasn't this team issue. No one ever talked about burnout. Uh, stress was a pablum of productivity. And people cho and I chose that residency because it contained that kind of hard work. That's just an unbelievable description of such a, a an amazing place. And uh... It, it it's again it's no accident that uh you were able to go on and do the things that you've done when you when you're put through such an intensive training environment and training pattern so let's be blunt about it if you want to go to the uh, olympics if they're going to be held this year in tokyo or if you want to go to carnegie hall and uh, be a virtuoso at a cello or a violin or any other instrument you don't do that by working a 20-hour week or even a 40-hour week, you practice, practice, practice. And you excel, and you go to various meets and in, walk away with the local trophies in order for you to compete on the national schedule scale. It's the same in medicine. If you wish to be the doctor, the go-to physician, whether it be radiology, psychiatry, surgery, trauma, critical care, uh, in a community, you have got to be known as the person who makes people well or is honest for those people that uh, uh, you can't uh, change because they're at a terminal event. But if you're going to go to Carnegie Hall, you get there with practice, practice, practice. The same with athletic, athletics, the same with any business including medicine, and especially surgery. And I don't think we, tech, we, we, we emphasize the technical expertise that is required to be that go-to physician for the president of Exxon or the person who happens to be hurt in interpersonal violence in a bar. 
And we want to come back to that uh, topic here in a in a moment because I think that's such a critical and important point that you raised there, sir. But we did want to talk to you a little bit about the Ben Taub Hospital and, and what that environment is like and and how that has sort of shaped you. And, and sir, how did you actually end up at Ben Taub and how is that institution uh, that is certainly a, a legendary place in trauma, how has that institution sort of changed over time? Uh, the Ben Taub uh, is a second name that it was applied to the city county hospital in Houston. The first one was a Jefferson Davis Hospital that opened initially in the 1920s and was located very near downtown and uh, was paid for uh, by a combined budget for the city and county and was incredibly low. Uh, It was obvious that a replacement hospital would be needed. So beginning in the 50s, led by Dr. DeBakey, a new hospital was to have been, was to be built in the Texas Medical Center, and it uh, would be uh, not only adjacent, but linked by a tunnel uh, to Baylor College of Medicine. Mr. Bentob was a humanitarian in town uh, who was happened to be into property, uh, uh, Depelchen Children's Home. He imported uh, tobacco, uh, uh, purchased land, but he was the chairman of the city county board that drove Jefferson Davis Hospital. So it was uh, appropriate when it was moved to the medical center to name the hospital after him. Uh, only the, it was limited budget, and if I was to put in a heart valve, a vascular graft, or a hip prosthesis, uh, the old uh, uh, ball uh, that uh, would be used for uh, a broken hip, I had to find a benefactor to purchase that piece of equipment uh, that I was going to put in a patient. Mr. Taub paid out of cash for a lot of those devices, and uh, because the budget uh, simply would not pay uh, it was understaffed, and uh, the salaries were uh, very low. As I indicated, for surgery in 1969, 19, well, actually 73, there was one full-time faculty in surgery, uh, and yet it had a fairly high uh, trauma volume and uh, elective surgery, gallbladders, colons, and we were doing lots and lots of operations on uh, biliary tract, uh, common duct explorations, gastric resections. Uh, and uh, if you finished general surgery, you were also expected to be proficient in vascular because there was no special vascular training. Uh, and so Bentob was the hospital for the people who had no other choice. Uh, the VA was here for the veterans, uh, but... Uh, uh, private patients went to Methodist, St. Luke's, and other hospital systems around uh, the city. It continues to be that to this day. Uh, but the outcomes, by using any quality metrics, uh, especially uh, uh, NISQIP, uh, uh, TQIP, and the like, 
Um, the best results in town are at the county hospital. I'm sure that they would, somebody would question me on this, but I also think that regardless of the specialty, the, the, the most intelligent, hardest working, most comprehensive physicians that Bader have has, uh, is working in the county hospital. Still a hospital uh, that uh, uh, competes. The salaries aren't the same uh, for nursing and others as they are in the private hospitals. But people who are there are sort of like uh, uh, a mission field. Uh, it's almost a sacred uh, uh, location for them to go. And the happiest faculty and the most sustained faculty of any of our affiliated hospitals are is Bentob. I look at Bentob as being a, uh, and, and the cost per unit DRG or ICD-9 code, um, CPT code, uh, are um, uh, the lowest cost per uh, diagnosis and, and is at the Bentob of all the hundred or so hospitals in the community. So we are a profit center for the community. If we had some of the other models of the country where the private hospitals build the uh, city, the county, the um, faith-based uh, sources of income, uh, it would cost uh, maybe four times as much for the uh, trauma and the acute care for the indigents. So I see the Bentob Hospital as a profit center for the private community. And, and yet there's not a, a illness tax or a sick tax to those private hospitals. The sources of income are pretty much uh, the taxpayers of those people who are property owners in the community. I want to switch gears here a little bit. You know, we've had the pleasure of having uh, both Drs. Moore and Dr. Feliciano on the podcast, and and I want to talk a little bit about your textbook. and And I, I realize that that the three of you rotate your editorship of that book, but both uh, Dr. Moore and Dr. Feliciano also called it your textbook, and I, I think that's appropriate. There's no question; it's the industry standard. It's what we all use as the Bible on the desk. It's what we teach from, and so on. I'm curious what the initial genesis of that textbook was, as well as how it's changed over time. In uh, the early 80s, um, there were a couple of textbooks of trauma. One was written by Tom Shires, and he rarely revised it. And I think he had his residents write it when they wrote it. Uh, and Dr. Robert Rutherford, who is a vascular surgeon, has died uh, from Denver, uh, had a textbook of trauma and emergency medicine. But remember, emergency medicine was just beginning, and there was really not a good textbook on emergency medicine. Um, it's one of those opportunities to discover building blocks for one's future. And I want to get back to that before we run out of time. And so I said, I'm, I'm going to put together, using multiple authors, the textbook of trauma. And we're going to revise it every three to five years. And I contacted a company and they said, well, 
There's not a trauma textbook that's really that good. Uh, there's Rutherford out there, uh, and the sales aren't that great. Uh, if you make a good enough book, it'll be bought. Uh, but this guy, this young guy in Denver is going to do a book with a different company. So I called Gene and said, uh, you're putting together a trauma book? Yes. I said, well, if you do, I'm going to kill you. Uh, I'm going to kill you with competition, and I love competition, and uh, uh, you, I, I think you feel the same way. <laughs> so I love uh, it. So uh, I said, why don't we go together and produce a double good book, and then any anybody that's coming along uh, just simply will be blown away and won't compete with us. And about that time, David came from Mayo, uh, fell in love with vascular and with emergency surgery and trauma, and we and and he wrote very well, had a good analytical mind, and each of us approached problems in a little bit different way, and thought we would complement each other. So we went together and made the book. We agreed we were going to rotate it, and we were going to produce the latest data, and uh, uh, we have had from time to time about two or three people try to compete, and every time somebody emerged, we doubled our efforts. Go to the heart of danger, near you find safety. Uh, increase the load of work, and there you're going to improve your product, uh, whatever it is. So that was our driving force, and uh, uh, we all, each wrote little handbooks uh, along the way, but the book that you really need to master the field uh, has been that book, Trauma. And I, as we announced at the Vegas meeting this year, uh, this last edition, is, ninth edition, is our last edition together. And uh, uh, we will no longer be the lead author, editors of uh, the book trauma your ability to move across platforms and deliver super high educational content is i, I think unrivaled uh, i would say unrivaled across surgery quite honestly it, it clearly is something that you are expert at I, I wondered if we could talk for a minute or two on your vegas course as you as you point out the trauma critical care and acute care surgery course tell us about how that started how it continues to change as well. And uh, it's, it's just no question. I mean, it is the preeminent um, uh, conference on any of these topics in the world and has been for forever. Well, it's back to the principle I brought up earlier, and that is recognize building blocks, recognize social forces that you can take advantage of to uh, satisfy the ego needs of um, the people who you then serve. Um, I was, I did not start the Las Vegas course. It was started by John Batdorf, um, Hank Cleveland, and Cuth Owens, and a few, uh, 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 Dr. Comack from Las Vegas. And it was started because of, of, a political issue, yes, political, that occurred in 1960 when um, 
the United States put an embargo around Cuba. Cuba was the place where people went to play from the United States, and there was gambling, there was prostitution, there was drugs, uh, there was uh, uh, fishing, uh, uh, there may have been uh, the mafia uh, involved, who knows. But that was all stopped and when the United States created the embargo. Some of those forces already were in Vegas, but Vegas overnight became the playground for gambling, for shows, for food. And young surgeons, I named them all ago, led by Batdorf and Comac, went to Las Vegas, and they became overnight uh, the oncolo oncologic surgeon, the acute care surgeon, the, the cancer surgeon, the colon rectal surgeon, the, the proctologist, and uh, orthopedist, and uh, the trauma surgeon. They didn't call themselves anything but a general surgeon. And uh, uh, the Committee on Trauma at the national level got to be a big deal. And uh, so they put together what they call the Western States Committee on Trauma because their doctors could not get away. So in the mid-60s, they put on their first course some 54 years ago. And that first course... Uh, was basically an EMS course and a CPR course. They discovered Recessiani. They filled the Recessiani case with booze. They went to a suite that they rented at Vegas, and uh, they filled, uh, it took out the booze, and they gave people booze as they put on a course. And during this while, they started talking about other courses. ATLS grew out of the faculty uh, that uh, were coming to the Vegas course and uh, uh, the pre-PTLS is an outgrowth, the Society of Trauma Nurses was an outgrowth, and the disaster course was an outgrowth. It was an opportunity for people to get their education and the hospitals now are requiring CME credits. So they came to get their credits and to learn what you do and don't do in the ambulance. Remember, I told you ambulance EMS did not exist. Thumper bumpers did not exist. Mass pants came along and were thought to be good. They were shown to be bad. And so a an analysis of what was good and what would help you with your patients happened. Very quickly, about the time Norm McSwain and I were put on the faculty in the late 60s, early 70s, the one big word of mouth about the Vegas course was if you really want to learn how to really help your patients, you don't go to a Chicago or a New York or a Boston course to learn what the textbook says. You learn the practical aspects of how to be the go-to doctor in the small communities of America. And that, so this was the, the meeting for uh, the people who came to Vegas. It also became 
obvious that the Committee on Trauma was putting on the ATLS and other courses, but a new area of medicine emerged, and that was critical care. Uh, Several of us were on the committee to evaluate critical care, and we discovered that there were five or six different specialties, pediatrics, anesthesia, uh, pulmonary, uh, uh, cardiac surgery, and trauma surgery that had courses, had examinations in critical care. (laughs) The questions were the same. In trying to fuse them, we discovered that these specialties had different and correct answers for these course, for their particular course. Still do. Still do. So, we added critical care to what the trauma course was in Las Vegas. So, it was trauma and critical care, and very quickly as the acute care surgeon doing all of the acute general surgery in a hospital, we added acute care surgery because the genome of this physician was identical. So that's what we do now. Trauma, critical care, acute care surgery, responds to that genome, provides that ego, and provides an answer for how you take, and and, and data from people who are in the trenches uh, to uh, how you take care of them. And that's the reputation of this course. And it is that word of mouth that brings people back year after year after year. So we have to keep it fresh. We have to make sure we give them good stuff. And when stuff is bad, and we gave them something bad last year or the year before, we've got to say, the mast kills people. Crystalloid kills people. And even this year, there was new information that said use of steroids and use of vasopressors may actually be something that we need to do away with. And we may be making patients worse and killing them quicker by using vasopressors in the emergency room, operating room, and in the ICU. And uh, that's created a lot of static. One of the things that strikes me, Dr. Maddox, is that you understand people in a very kind of profound way and you cater your educational content and the things that you put out um, really to serve people's needs. And you clearly have a very profound understanding of that. And I think, you know, that also applies to the work that you've done internationally. Uh, And I understand that you've done a lot of work, uh, particularly in the Middle East, helping developed trauma systems. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with that and what you've learned from that experience? Well, you should not have missed the point I made in the first minute of when you asked me questions. I went to college to go into a religious field and either be a missionary or a Baptist preacher or a gospel singer. If you're any of those, you've got to understand your audience. You've got to understand people. So it had been that background that I started. I um, had the opportunity to go to Vietnam, to go to Europe, uh, to go to a number of meetings in Washington and 
in uh, other locations in the with the military during my two years with the uh, U.S. Army. Um, and I made contacts. And one of my habits was to get business cards and contacts with uh, people wherever I went. And when they had a birthday, whenever they had an anniversary, I would send them a little card. Happy birthday. Happy anniversary. If, they, if I saw an article they wrote that made a difference, I would... Uh, let them know. And some of those people we put on the faculty from time to time at Vegas uh, in recognition of their contribution. But during my um, first few years of uh, faculty, remember I was doing all the vascular, all the cardiac uh, at the Bentob. In addition to, I didn't, wasn't writing many papers in those areas because I was writing papers in trauma. But um, uh, our results in valves, coronary bypasses, we did the first internal mammary bypasses done in Houston. Uh, our results with endocarditis were the best in town. Best in town. So um, at one of our faculty meetings about 1978, Dr. DeBakey said, uh, Ken Faisal's widow approached him at a meeting he was at in Lebanon, remember he was Lebanese, and asked him to start open-heart surgery at the King Faisal Hospital in Riyadh. Maybe it was 77. And so we all looked at each other and said, where is Riyadh? And he said, it's in Saudi Arabia. Uh, what language do they speak? Uh, is, it, is it near a place to go scuba diving? No, it's in the middle of the desert. It's hot. Uh, but... Uh, they have a lot of people who have uh, uh, congenital heart disease and a lot of people with rheumatic heart disease. So he um, um, said, we want you guys to see what it would take for you to go over. We, we, we discussed it for six months or so. None of us wanted to go to a strange place. But uh, we then uh, put together a contract thinking they'll turn it down. Well, they accepted it. And for many years, uh, we sent for a three-month rotation um, uh, two surgeons, uh, a senior faculty, and a resident, two anesthesiologists, uh, ICU nurses, OR nurses, and we uh, began open-heart surgery. Uh, they had cardiologists who were doing casts uh, at the King Faisal Hospital. We met a lot of people at the Middle Eastern conferences that we participated with them, and we have maintained that contact ever since. So this was a, a, an early uh, trek at globalization. In the meanwhile, military campaigns were coming, and our contacts that we'd made in the Army uh, were either part of the Las Vegas conference or uh, read our articles, and uh, uh, we were needing um, various devices. Actually, uh, prior to my going to Vietnam, I was a participant, very few people know this, in the development of the military's model of the current uh, uh, G-suit, the mass pants. And we thought it was the greatest thing in the world because it was going to elevate blood pressure. And when we got out of the Army, came back to Houston, we discovered that uh, what we thought was good in Vietnam they didn't have in Houston when they bought a few and we studied it. 
we found we increased the mortality. So we did a very good scientific study and found that we accelerated the complications when we elevated the blood pressure in the ambulance, the emergency room, the operating room in trauma patients. And we popped the clot. And that led then to a lot of other studies. But it was that international link and comparing data in the international link that was one of those building blocks we recognized to say, hey, there's a difference here. I would like to pause here a moment and say that there are organizations like EAST, a Western trauma, that spend a lot of their time talking about clinical practice guidelines. <laughs> uh, there's even books about practice guidelines. And if you read them, the majority of them are based upon dogma and biased approaches that something is good that's never been studied. 80% probably of what we do in emergency medicine, trauma, general surgery, internal medicine, infectious disease, and even immunology is based upon no prospective randomized study. The word evidence-based is used by hospital administrators and nurses, but they're referring to an article has been written and no one's looked at the statistics, whether it's good statistics, whether it's applicable statistics. Of the people listening to this talk pull the ease guidelines. Ask for the data. You'll find that there are at least 80% of what we do in medicine are building blocks that are ready to be destroyed or to be built upon. Some of the things that are good, um, we have destroyed and remain destroyed. Let me just give you one example. During the early cardiac times, we use a Swan-Gans catheter. The critical care doctors did not like to put in swans for a whole lot of reasons. Sometimes they were using them wrong. So that if you used a swan during the 80s and 90s, you were considered to be a lesser doctor. Or maybe the, 50, the, maybe the 60, 70s. Um, along came then um, COVID last year and the year before. We had a lot of people with hemodynamic instability in the ICU. I cannot find one institution anywhere in the United States or around the world that used anything other than, other than ultrasound of the chest, transcutaneous ultrasound, to evaluate the hemodynamics, when a beautiful instrument in COVID would have been the swan against catheter. Did we increase the mortality? No, what we did around the United States was create over 20 different protocols in all the different specialties that applied to the COVID patient in the ICU. And yet, none of them talked to each other about why one did not work and the other one did, or which one actually did work. We spent a lot of money, but we did not ask the basic questions. Where's the data? So, the building blocks are there 
hidden in the bias of clinical practice guidelines. So if I'm leaving one message today, it was my ability to sense something doesn't compute here. And the fact that when we applied MAST to trauma patients in Houston, our mortality rate increased. And the other thing it increased was their pre-hospital and emergency room blood pressure. And that became the culprit for us to study. So it opened the door to evaluate uh, those things. And I'm suggesting there are many areas right there um, in the ICU, in vasopressors, in vasoplegia, in the fibrosis that we see with uh, COVID disease, and also in the vasoplegia we see in some super sick uh, patients who get certain um, uh, anesthetics uh, under certain procedures. So the opportunities are there for the person who likes to climb and walk the high, hard road. Dr. Maddox, one of the things that I've loved that you've been doing lately is you've actually, uh, I think, uniquely embraced social media and you've been using um, mediums like Twitter so effectively to make the points that you've been making today with us that um, you know that there is dogma and it's there to be challenged. I'm I'm really curious. You know, if someone of your seniority to embrace Twitter is really quite powerful and and amazing. What made you go on on uh, Twitter and become active on that? And how do you see social media um, interacting with science and scientific research moving forward? I hate to admit this, but it was political. Uh, I discovered and I don't know how he did it, that we had a president that had um, some pretty strong feelings. He used Twitter to attack his enemies or those people who attacked him. And he told them, he said, you go after me, I'm going to go after you. And he also uh, had some political philosophies, whether you agree with him or not. He expressed them and was able to express them in a few short words on Twitter. Now, um, I did a little research, and I, I don't know how in the world he did anything else in his life um, if he wrote all the Twitters that were ascribed to his name. So I think he must have had a team of people that worked with him. But the same is true of uh, uh, raising questions and use, using... Uh, Uh, the media. And uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, and the various groups within Facebook uh, are out there. I have created um, a uh, Facebook group for the physicians, for the surgeons of Mexico, Brazil, Spanish-speaking, Thailand, Japan, uh, the Middle East, uh, I've created a Facebook page called uh, The Quiet Zone, a place where people can, if they, as long as they don't insult somebody, can reflect just like you put your feet up at the end of a good operation and talk, what did we do? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? And uh, The Quiet Zone has become that uh, with uh, several thousand people. And uh, I posted three things to the 
a quiet zone uh, just this morning. Sometimes I, I reproduce what other people have written. Uh, and uh, uh, these are longer normally than the little Twitter tweet, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's to reflect and people to reflect back. And uh, there are many other uh, uh, secondary ways that the social media can be used. And uh, there are some social medias uh, under uh, WhatsApp um, and uh, that uh, uh, organizations have joined together. And uh, uh, I enjoy reading those. Uh, I try not to compete with them um, and because they each compete in a different way. But uh, in, in analyzing them, you can analyze people's social habits on how they use it, when they use it, and then take advantage of that when you want to stir the pot and create some controversy. You know, the, the Vegas course, to be honest, for those of us that have attended it and for those few of us that you know, get the email from you and Mary to, to be faculty on it, it's really the, the opportunity and the, and the privilege of a, of a career. Um, really, I think that the highlight moment, whether people talk about it or not, though, is at the conclusion of that Las Vegas meeting, your commentary and your discussion, your summary on all of the preceding talks um, that have that have happened, and and this year you you touched on two things in particular. You commented that throughout your your travels, which were obviously international and widespread, there's two things that you don't see discussed very frequently anymore. The first was the importance of surgical technique itself, and the second was moving an operation forward in a in a, a quick, uh, efficient, uh, but safe manner, so a, a timely manner. I was wondering, you know, if you could talk about that a little bit more to close us out, because I, I certainly agree entirely. I, I think there's been significant drift, even in the past 15 years, uh, per se, on those two topics. I'm curious why you think that is, what we should do about it, and where you see the future going. I don't remember the name of the author. The author is a, um, is a Navy SEAL. He wrote a book called Extreme Ownership extreme ownership yeah jocko willink you betcha fantastic uh, i recommend anyone who wants to excel read that book during my career every patient i operate upon was my patient if they had a complication i owned it and i had to fix it i had to communicate with that patient there were times I was out of town and someone covered me, but they were covering me, and I appreciated that. But when I got, got back, I accepted that extreme ownership. For whatever reason, it may be the 80-hour work week, it may be the 40-hour work week, it may be individual personalities, but um, we, it may have been... Um, a mistaken description of professionalism, but we tend to practice a team concept of shared responsibility. And uh, a patient in even one of our county hospitals may be operated upon three, four times, five times, take backs, complications, and be operated upon by a different surgeon. And everyone then discusses it, our complication. And uh, it doesn't take someone 
to be very smart just to tabulate which doctors have dehiscence, which doctors use staples on a stomach anastomosis and all of those fall apart. I don't know what staples they're using all the time, but uh, there's a trend that tends to be uh, repetitive. And yet the team doesn't point a finger and say, there's a problem here. Something else happened at this year's Vegas meeting that has disturbed me a great deal. Two of our senior individuals, Gene Moore and Dr. Seiss, gave talks, Gene Moore on Monday at noon, Dr. Seiss uh, on Wednesday morning, about the changes in professionalism and what has happened for the availability of the young surgeon to develop that ownership. Both of those individuals were chided for what they said at that meeting. Well, I have never chided anyone for what they've said. I praise them for saying something controversial so that it brings forward so we can talk about it. I actually praise those two for saying, thank you for bringing this issue, these issues out. And go back and reread their syllabus material and if you recorded it, listen to what they said. I think, I think ownership, attention to detail, tying the prettiest knots available, cutting the suture right on the knot that has sufficient tightness in it so it doesn't come unraveled, uh, rather than using a ligature to try to zot, um, a vascular structure together, where that hasn't been studied that well, uh, we really need to revisit. Um, two days ago, a Dr. Jorge uh, Cervantes, like Cervantes from uh, Don Quixote, died in Mexico. We were born almost within a month of each other. Our careers have paralleled each other. Uh, Jorge George Cervantes has said at a number of national meetings beginning 10 years ago, the master surgeon who is technically adept, and as you watch his movies or her movies, you praise them in the slickness. They're like a virtuoso playing a violin or a cello, and you're not only listening to the most world's most beautiful music, but you're watching their hands. A, a pianist whose hands are like magic. Uh, we don't have a, a, a co-pilot that's watching uh, like uh, uh, the, 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 the beautifulness of the flight like we do in some other areas. So, yes, uh, I, I am pleading that others enjoin this concern and we not increase our mediocrity, but we have attention to detail, attention to um, the most specific of detail, and not having to say, well, I'll go look it up. I attend many M&Ms 
and grand rounds on when I'm a visiting professor. You look at the protocol and look at the mistakes and the lack of internal consistency of complications in death, it almost appears like some of them are slipshod, put together, the night before the morning of an M&M conference. To be very blunt, if people operate like they put together a protocol, I don't want to be operated upon by them. I want to be operated upon when I have an operation by someone who has the best results in town because of attention to detail and uh, pursuit of excellence and knowledge of the anatomy. And that is all possible. But it can't be possible without extreme ownership. If you own the problem, it's our job to fix it. And I see a problem in an evolutionary surgical education that I've criticized, and I've been criticized for not making everything uh, peaches and cream and quiet. But I make a point of it because I think it's a problem. I think our complication rates now exceed those of 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think the number of preventable deaths are returning. The fix has to be internal. If we don't fix it, society is going to, with artificial intelligence, catch us in our own game of lack of attention to detail. You have no idea how fortunate I am and how happy I am that you opened this door and this window for me to say these things. But if somebody doesn't like it, it's your fault because you asked me the darn question. But thank you. <laughs> I'll take that responsibility to my grave, sir. Always, always. But, but it's my time to hand off the baton. It's my time to give someone else the book. It's my time for others to have the courage to fail by taking the tough road. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.